When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Product Coffee, a podcast where product management leaders share stories, advice, and thoughts on all things product over a cup of coffee. Grab a cup of joe and join us to level up your product career 30 minutes at a time. Right. uh, Welcome to the podcast. Um, So excited to have Natasha Mooney Walton on the podcast today. Um, she is the VP of product at Maverick, um, has a, an amazing career from uh, um, uh, Adobe, um, and I, I forget the company that was acquired by them, but she's went through a lot of uh, interesting changes in her career, a lot of uh, product leadership roles, and also has started a uh, tech disability project that I would love to chat about as well. But um, welcome to the show, Natasha. Thank you, Kevin. I'm so happy to chat with you here on Product Coffee today. Yeah. Why don't you tell us and start with your journey about product management? I'd love to share that with the listeners. Like, how did you first fall into the product career? Absolutely. Uh, So I graduated from college in 2008 and had been an urban studies major, planning to go into some nonprofit work, perhaps government, maybe pursue a master's degree in urban planning. Uh, but I wanted to take a break from school, so I moved to San Francisco, which is a city that I, I loved and was really excited to live on the West Coast, having grown up on the East Coast. And as uh, many folks may or may not recall, I moved there in late August uh, 2008, and within a week, uh, the economy had essentially started collapsing. And there was a hiring freeze that took over, uh, for sure, uh, the nonprofit sectors, the the public sector, and even much of the private sector as well. And so it it was not an ideal time to be caught without a job and without a lot of professional experience as a new graduate. Uh, But the the great thing about startups is that someone is always starting one. Uh, And startups continue even uh, through economic downturns. And so I, in some ways, uh, found myself at kind of the the right place at the the right time, so to speak, in terms of uh, my career taking a a slightly different direction than I had planned, but one that has turned out uh, pretty great uh, despite. So my first job out of school, I worked as employee number three at a startup called Virgins, uh, founded by a guy named Steve Newcomb. He had founded many companies. He was in his, you know, maybe several decades into his career at this point. And Y Combinator existed, but it was kind of just taking off. And so he, he really built this as a teaching startup. So he was excited to recruit people who wanted to learn about building companies. And um, there weren't nearly as many avenues for learning about building companies um, from people who had done that the way that there are today. 
um, back in 2008. And so I only worked there for a year, a year and a half. Um, I was his executive assistant um, and just pitched in on a million different projects. But I learned so much about fundraising, about hiring, about company building, culture building, uh, product building. I, I worked on, on one of the products that we piloted as well. I worked on some PR project. You know, I just got to touch everything. And uh, by the time I left that company, what I knew was that I was hooked on on company building uh, and and working in tech. I felt uh, very fortunate that things had turned out how they were. Um, from then, I went on to a company called Playdom. It was a Zynga competitor at the time building Facebook games. And I got a job in email marketing and learned all about email marketing and was emailing millions of people. I thought it was really cool to be working at a slightly bigger company working at scale. And as part of my job, I worked with all of the different producers. It's kind of what they call product managers in the gaming industry. And, uh, you know, every week I would meet with all the producers and see what was going on in their worlds. What were you launching? What promotions were you running? You know, what, how, how are they driving monetization and, and retention engagement? And um, within the year working there, I was like, okay, I know, I know what, what I want to work on and I want to be in product. And what became clear to me was that product was kind of similar to that urban planning role that I had been planning on pursuing and as, as an undergrad, um, as that person who kind of stepped back and surveys the entire landscape, needs to wrap their mind around uh, all of the different actors, all of the different needs, all of the different ever-changing opportunities, and ultimately be the one to drive the direction, make those final decisions, and orchestrate people around the direction that you want to head. And so uh, from there, I went on to become a, a game producer at a kind of a Playdom offshoot after we were acquired by Disney. Our VP of product went on to, had a company called Rivet Games, and they took a on me as a first-time um, product manager, and I went to scrum training and, and got a team and just kind of started digging in. So that was the beginning of how I became a product manager. I love that that story and, and kind of, you know, everyone's path into product management is always so interesting. I find that, you know, myself uh, coming in from um, being a musician is just like, that, that's such an unusual path, right? Everyone, it's never like linear and, and, and easy and, and the same as everyone else's. So I think it's one of the roles that has so much diversity and uh, a background, which I, which I love. Um, so now, now that you've fallen into that career and you've kind of managed those leaps in, in, you know, in, in, of success, right? You've been at companies, you've taken the bets, now you've started to grow, you've gained the skills, and then you take that leap from, leap from like an IC to a manager. And so what does that experience look like? Um, how, how did you manage that? It's, it's been an interesting uh, and perhaps at this point a, a little bit atypical of a path in that I became a manager within my first year of becoming a product manager. Uh, so at, at that first gaming company I was working for, um, I, we, we took a slightly different, I'm, I'm even trying to remember now, uh, I believe the engineer I was working, I had one engineer and one associate product manager who were reporting into me. And uh, the, the details are, are fuzzy at this point, but that was going to support our organizational growth at the time. Uh, we actually went out of business within a year, uh, but it was experience that I had. I was working closely with these a couple of folks, and so they started reporting to me. And so uh, I had no management training, uh, no 
direction, uh, but we were a startup and this was a, a little while ago. And so it just kind of made sense for us. And then sure enough, when I went on to get my next role, the fact that I had had some management experience under my belt, I think helped me become the first product manager at Livefire. And about within the first year of working there, I started managing a team as well. And at first it was um, product managers and then designers and then product marketing. Um, so I started growing my team. And so, uh, something that I think is, is interesting for me is that in some ways I have more experience in product leadership than I do in product management. And of course, you know, occasionally I'll, I'll replay the script and say, wow, how could my career have looked different if I had had a really solid career of being a product manager under my belt with more product leadership? Cause I was often reporting into the CEO in these early years of my career. Um, how would my career have looked different? And I'm sure that it, it, it would have, and I'm, I'm sure that, you know, everyone has their different paths and the different unique set of experiences that they have gone through that, that lend them to their, their next role. And this has just happened to be what my path has turned into. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, then like with, so life fire, was it life fire? Is that correct? Okay. So with them, it sounded like you were their first product management hire and then that evolved, you said over time. So you're the team of one essentially. Uh, okay. And then were you reporting to the CEO when you started? Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, wow. So yeah. there was a member of the development team who had been pitching in as, as, a, as a PM who I'll, is a good friend and I'll, I'll give lots of credit to. And we worked closely together. But I was the first person with the, the title of product manager at the company reporting into the CEO and uh, was hungry and wanted to, was excited to grow as a leader, was excited to report to the CEO and um, definitely was eager to be that um, connective tissue between the founder's vision for the company and kind of the execution arm and, and what we would actually build out. So that was the first role that I played there. Yeah. And then, so, so tell me more about that experience for you. Like was, um, how did you, um, what were some of the learnings that you had on that journey? Right. Cause I would imagine, you know, that, that, that growth is, is pretty fast. It's condensed. There's a lot of ups and downs. It's, it's fast paced. Right. So, so tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was a wild ride. Um, so I joined the company just a little bit, just just as they were finding product market fit and getting ready to scale. So uh, Livefire was a commenting platform and had initially uh, been conceived of as more of a consumer platform for conversations, um, kind of in more of that kind of social conversation space and ended up finding product market fit uh, with enterprise comments. So uh, Fox Sports is one of the first uh, major companies that saw Livefire's real-time commenting technology and said, that's what we need. We do sports coverage, we're moving really quickly, and uh, there's no technology that can keep up with the pace of conversation that our audience actually wants to have online. It was really important for them to own that conversation. They didn't want people going to Twitter or wherever else to talk about a game that they were watching on Fox Sports. They wanted people on their owned and operated property, and so that was kind of one of one of our first customers. And um, a major news organization out of London ended up being one of the first ones as well. And all of a sudden, we had started to find a, a bit of uh, a fit with media companies. And so 
uh, that was when I joined, I think we had three customers and within a year it was something like over a hundred. And, uh, so we were moving very quickly, uh, had built some pretty incredible technology and that needed to work at scale as we were growing. And so, uh, thankfully, uh, just as I was getting there, we were doing a re-architecture in terms of anticipating that and said, okay, this, the proof of concept stuff that we initially built isn't going to be what takes us to this next level. So that's a, a little bit of setting, setting the stage of where we were. Um, but we, uh, we grew, we grew our team, uh, a lot and needed to hire a lot of roles that we had never had before, like customers, success managers, and, um, solutions engineers to help on the sales side, kind of building out a, a complex enterprise, uh, sales company, uh, from a team that had been mostly, you know, pr- product and, and engineering kind of heads down, just building for a long time. Um, but in terms of some of the challenges that I was working on, it was, uh, bringing order to chaos. So, uh, because there hadn't been a product manager, it was a lot of the CEO saying, Hey, here's where we need to go. And engineers and engineering leadership being like, great, we can build that. Uh, and thankfully, you know, a lot, a lot of awesome people in the room who knew what they were doing and they were getting it done, but everyone could agree that there could be a bit more of a streamlined experience and that we could actually move more efficiently if we were able to bring some more process in. So the first thing that I did was implement some process to help kind of the whole team be able to work together more seamlessly. Um, and then it came into hiring, uh, and growing the team of product managers and starting to then manage the team of designers that we had. Uh, so even though I was a, a product manager, um, from the get go, I was, uh, playing a role that was, uh, kind of more expansive than a typical product manager, uh, job description. And then when you, I love that bringing order to chaos, <laughs> this, the process that you initially implemented, what, what were the uh, key tenants of those processes that you implemented? I really took what I had learned in, in scrum training and said, let's, let's do this, um, mo- for, for the most part. So, you know, getting us set up on what we, we actually did three week sprints to reduce the overhead at the time, um, and uh, splitting the the team up into a couple of different teams, so doing some team topology work, um, standardizing a lot of the release process. So I didn't have opinions on these things as someone fairly new to technology, but our engineering leaders did, and I listened to them. And they were kind of my customer of saying, "Okay, what do you need? What does, how does your need team need to operate?" And then I would translate that into a process that we would then allow. We had you know over twenty engineering team members at the time who were, um, contributing to this product. Um, so as, as, as a single PM, uh, you know, I was relying a lot on our CEO's vision. This was an extremely visionary CEO. And so he really knew, uh, what he wanted us to build and what he was hearing from the market. And I was playing a a bit more of kind of a a translation role than the way that many product teams are set up to work today. So for, we're, we're 10 years ago now. This is 20, 2012. I joined this, this company. So I'm sure listeners will say, wow, that's, that sounds really different from how I hear things working now. And, and it was, um, but this was, you know, this, this was kind of, um, right around the time that this wave that we're still experiencing coming out of that 2008 recession, you know, there was a lot of downtime and then things were just picking up. And so, um, this there, a lot of the, 
the chapter that the industry still kind of is in to a certain degree, this was the very beginning of it. Um, so a, a lot has certainly changed since then. Well, I mean, a lot of those things, you know, are, are kind of core to put in place for for us to operate and in, in, in the role. So I, I don't think it's so far off, uh, even though it's not the only things that are important nowadays. Right. And so I think I think that, that's a great uh, explanation of kind of some of the things that you, you implemented in that position at the time for, for that growth. And it sounded like, you know, it worked right. Like you guys, you got to scale, you were able to sell to Adobe. Um, is that correct? That, that, that process. So talk to me a little bit more about that since you were essentially the head of product, um, in a, um, you're, you've been both acquirer and acquiree in this role. So what was that journey like, uh, in that position for you? Um, a, a couple of core milestones that we went through, uh, at live fire prior to being, uh, acquired by Adobe, we made a couple of acquisitions of our own. So, um, Storify being one of the, the key one, a tool that a lot of journalists use for visual storytelling. We acquired that team and started folding their tech into our, uh, into our platform. Uh, we expanded our addressable market from uh, media companies largely in some of the early days into more brand marketers, um, allowing kind of translating our core technology of like comments and live blog, live chat, media walls to a kind of a, a, a larger number of customers we could work with. And we also built out a management layer, a executive layer um, as well. So there was a SVP of product who was hired, who had uh, a lot of experience that he was able to come in and lend to maturing our product organization. There was a CTO that we brought in. And so um, we we definitely grew from kind of our, our rough and tumble startup days into a, a scaling organization um, that could be delivering even you know more large scale product offerings than we had in some of those early days, uh, and through through that maturation, we entered into strategic relationships with both Adobe and Salesforce. So they both made strategic investments in us, and um, you know, I think our. Our, our CEO and, and partnerships team and executive team were incredibly strategic in um, being able to see where social was heading and seeing what they wanted the next chapter of Live Fire to be within kind of one of these larger organizations to help um, bring kind of what, what we were doing and what we were experiencing as employees to um, an even, even larger organization. Um, Adobe ended up becoming a customer of ours as well. And, um, you know, we started with a product integration as often happens after a strategic investment and, and prior to an acquisition. And so, uh, we started in, we came up with a pipeline. Um, so we had a, an asset manager for pieces of social content, um, asset manager being kind of, you know, like, like. Google, Google Photos is, an, is a consumer asset manager, and a lot of these big marketing technologies have asset managers as well because, you know, you know marketing marketers need to manage a lot of different assets. And we were seeing, you know, an important 
um, trend being that there was this new type of asset they managed, which was social assets. Instagram photos and videos in particular were becoming more valuable than a tweet had been. A tweet was, you know, a bit more um, visceral and and moment in time, whereas these Instagram posts were becoming something that an organization might actually want to hang on to, might actually want to reuse, not just in, you know, on for the day on their homepage, but maybe in their marketing material or an advertisement. Uh, And so this is kind of an extension of user-generated content, a new use case we saw for it. So we built a digital uh, social asset manager to put all of these different pieces of social media into files, organize them, share them, et cetera. And that was a really key uh, product investment we made that then synced up with Adobe's experience manager, um, that's kind of Adobe's website builder um, for big marketer, you know, often used by marketers, but lots of big websites are built off of this technology. And so we started piping our te- our social tech into their tech. And that was um, kind of our, our first integration. And I believe within the year of launching that, they ended up uh, acquiring our company, which was a thrill. Yeah, I think if we think about it from like the, the product manager point of view, getting into this career and there's so much consolidation of software and technologies and products that you know we're seeing daily you know and and so you know and and so if you're a product manager looking to get into this role and you know you're you're balancing like a uh mang or fang company giving you rsus versus like a private company giving you stock and with a potential payout with a bigger risk like what does that kind of look like is it is it a um you know, uh, do, I know everyone structures these deals differently, but do they pay you out in like a cash bonus? Was it like you have now stock in the Adobe company that you can actually, you know, sell off? Like, what did that package look like in this particular uh, instance? Um, so it was a combination of a cash bonus upon signing an offer letter with Adobe and stock in Adobe, um, which uh, was a great time to, to join Adobe as they were switching over to a subscription model. And so, you know, uh, as honestly, as, as great as the financial incentives were there, I would say more than anything, the opportunity to get to translate my experience to a world-class company such as Adobe, I look back on now as the biggest investment in my career and a move that has paid dividends um financially as as well as from an experience perspective well congratulations i mean that's a huge feat in this in this career and then tell me more about the experiential gain in adobe like what did that look like because then you're kind of shifting it's a much you know it's an enterprise organization i i'm I'm assuming they're public at the time of acquisition and you know what was the size difference between the employees and then what were the roles and responsibilities of ownership change? Like, what did that look like? So we were something like 150 employees when we were acquired into a company of 25,000 globally. Uh, and I had, as I mentioned, when I worked That's at Clayton, we were, oh yeah. <laughs> Big, big difference, world, yeah. world away. And the only yeah. similar experience I had had, when I worked at Playton, we were about 500 and we were acquired by Disney. And I don't know how big they were, but very, very big. But we remained very independent during that time. At a certain point, Playton became much more integrated into Disney Interactive. But the time that I worked there, not a ton changed. Um, I mean, we had a silver pass, but not a ton changed organizationally for us in, in the moment, the way that it did at Adobe, where we got 
our badge and we started going to a different office. We started being part of a different business unit um, that we, so uh, it was, it was complete, it was completely new to me. And uh, while I only worked there for one year, I can say that it was, it was career, it was a career defining amount of information that I got to process and um, just getting to be in certain rooms, getting to see how a big organization works um, and what it looks like to, for instance, influence within a large organization versus within a small organization, uh, what it looks like to uh, operate when you don't necessarily have a deep relationship with every single person that you're interacting with and in more of an acquaintance model uh, of, of operating and to, to build some of those relationships more over time. And what it means, you know, I learned so much about strategy. Adobe is a very strategy-heavy company. PMs are, it's a very strategy-heavy role. So complete opposite from, for instance, the first role I had at LiveFire where PMs are working less hands-on probably than a typical startup with with designers and engineers not that they aren't collaborating with design and engineers but it's not just every day kind of in in the thick up to your arms and wireframes and prototypes and, and lots of details it was much more about building strong strategy strategy decks with strong market research and that you gained from being on analyst calls and shopping those around with executives and uh, managers and directors and cross-functionally and getting people excited about your idea and then being able to kind of grab a shovel and start start working on it um, it was also a very product marketing centric organization where I learned a ton about PMM and the importance of, um, I, I think product marketing is often thought of as kind of a last mile activity. This is when you're launching and you're writing messaging and, you know, working with marketing on the press release and essentially, you know, informing your, your customer base about what you're launching. But at Adobe, I really learned about the power of bringing product marketing to that first mile, to the strategy piece, to be vetting, you know, pricing and packaging ideas and proposals from the very beginning and then baking that into the strategy that you shop around so that you already have that messaging and positioning somewhat vetted before you start building so that you can build with it in mind. Influencing people that, um, that you don't see on a daily basis or haven't even met, right? And you're kind of positioning product differently than having this, you know, Hey, I work with you all the time and we sit next to each other. Right. And so that's a different way of influence. So what were some of the key kind of, uh, artifacts, traits, uh, things that you, you got from that situation, that learning opportunity that you can share with our listeners? You know, Adobe has this awesome cloud strategy where they have their experience cloud, their creative cloud and their document cloud. And they, you know, talk in their earnings call about the importance of having each of the combination of each of those grow their market share and inch, and the, having them be interoperable, having them connect with one another, being an important um, part of how they're able to grow. And so uh, a cool part of getting to work in product at Adobe is that so much of it has to do with understanding what some of these other business units and these other clouds, what they're going after, understanding what their strategy is, understanding, um, you know, what, what, 
where they're trying to move and then understanding the connective tissue and, you know, content really being a key piece of connective tissue at Adobe, whether it's a, it's a document or an asset that you're creating in the creative cloud and then want to use in the experience cloud. Um, and we were, content was in our lifeblood at, at LifeFire. And so it was just a fascinating master class in how to be, you know, again, without necessarily being quite as tight knit or having as much time to get to know each other as you did in a startup where you intrinsically, that relationship builds all that information that you have about what's important to you and where are you bringing your organization or, or you're all operating under the same strategy. Now you're trying to knit a bunch of different strategies together while building relationships with people to accomplish it. So then, you know, you, you spent about a year plus at Adobe and then you, you kind of took, I don't know if it would consider founding something, a break from product, but <laughs> kind of, uh, then, then you kind of went to this tech disability project. So, so now what is the tech disability project? Tech Disability Project is a nonprofit that I founded that is a community of tech professionals with disabilities. So while I was at Adobe, um, actually just as we were getting acquired, I was starting to develop a disability and uh, it was... I was thinking about taking short-term disability leave and was just starting to talk to my manager about that and then learned that we were getting acquired and it was like, oh, okay, uh, well, let's see. Let's see what changes here. And so ended up going through the acquisition and there were you know, a couple of great things that happened. One is that Adobe has a phenomenal medical leave, like, you know, incredible big company benefits. And so, um, I was able to take advantage of that benefit pretty, pretty soon after starting, which really supported me and and my life and my family and my ability to then come back and work at Adobe for a while. And the second thing was that Adobe has, um, employee resource groups, um, for underrepresented, underrepresented employees. And so there was a group called Access Adobe that was for people with disabilities or caregivers or allies um, to our community. And uh, I was very, this meant a lot to me as someone who was new to the company to see that Adobe had this public commitment to people with disabilities. Um, And when I started to look into it to see if there was a meeting I could join or a group I could join, it turned out that it was still in its nascency. And uh, they were essentially looking for employees who wanted to get involved. And uh, I was, I came back from medical leave and was just so grateful to be working for this awesome employer and jazzed about it. And so I rolled my sleeves up and I started recruiting for Access Adobe and started, you know, hosting some meetings and getting to know some folks from all over the world, actually, at Adobe who are living, also living with disabilities or were connected to disability some way. And that was my first experience kind of in, really in a a DEI space. Um, and certainly my first experience in um, working deeply in the disability community and was very healing for me as I was starting to reckon with my own disability status and um, navigating a you know a demanding career with a disability. I was looking for support and uh, got that through Access Adobe. And so when I ended up needing to step back from full time work um, due to disability, I still had some cycles uh, intellectually and, and energy wise that I wanted to put into something and uh, decided to essentially create an extension of the work that I had started at Adobe and pour that into Tech Disability Project. 
That's an, uh, that's an awesome journey, um, there. And, and I'm, you know, just founding a, a nonprofit too, while going through all of that, um, you know, I, I can understand the, the pent up kind of needing to do something, especially going hard as a product manager in startups and at enterprise, and then having to have a setback, you know, that, that you can't really control. And then, you know, not being a hundred percent and then like, just, just having some, some, you know, drive to do something different. And so the, that's amazing. And then the, the tech disability project, like, tell me more about that journey as well. Like after you started that kind of, what did that look like? And, and how did you, uh, how did you make that thing happen? An important, uh, tenant, so to speak, that I wanted to uphold and that had become, uh, that I'd been learning about in some of the work that I had started, um, was just the importance of people with disabilities speaking for ourselves. Um, historically there have been a lot of medical professionals or caregivers or parents who are speaking on our behalf or telling our stories and for as grateful as we can be to, you know, any, any ally and in any capacity for supporting the good work, it's also very important, um, for people with disabilities in particular, for us to be owning our narratives and for us to be kind of founding our own initiatives. And so, um, I started with a the first year we did a series of blog posts on Medium and started a Medium publication. And the goal was to publish uh, a blog post every day of the month of October, which is uh, Disability Employment Awareness Month in the United States, um, by a tech professional with a disability, just sharing whatever they wanted to share, whether it was a more of a personal story or a professional story or a, you know, a, a, a three point type of blog post. Um, we, whether they wanted it to be anonymous or whether they wanted to put their name on it, um, was totally up to them. And, uh, so we, we just kind of started drumming up this series of our narratives and it was so cool and something that I think is so cool about the disability community and, and really any any group of people or any un- underrepresented group of people um, but something that I especially enjoy in our community is how there can be this rich diversity of experience you know every disability is is different but also these like really important um foundational threads that can run through someone's experience, um, regardless of how distinct their, their disability is. And so, um, that's what we put together the first year. Um, and then, uh, the second year we did an in-person event at Adobe and did a panel. Um, and since then, I guess after that was the, the pandemic, uh, and, uh, we did a virtual uh, type of meet and greet where we connected a bunch of people logged on and we connected a bunch of people online. So uh, essentially we've turned into an organization that where you can sign up all year round and experience our content all year round. But every October we try to gather and do something um, for this awareness month to be supporting some of the other awareness activities going on. And really the, An important note here is that uh, disability employment has hovered around 30% um, for years and years and years in the United States, only 30%. So 70% of people with disabilities, adults living in the United States, don't have the opportunity to work and don't have the opportunity to earn. Uh, and it's, I've been in that position myself, even as someone who has, you know, a, a relative amount of, 
of privilege. I I know what it's like to wish that you could be earning your own money and advancing your own career and um, not have have that opportunity. And so raising awareness about that every October is a really important part of Tech Disability Project because there's a lot that employers can be doing to be creating uh, more inclusive uh, environments for people with disabilities to thrive and also more inclusive hiring pipelines and actually prioritizing uh, recruiting people with disabilities into their organizations. As a product leader, what things would you, should they consider? That they that they might not be aware of, uh, you know, while looking looking for folks with disabilities, or not not necessarily looking, but like, yeah, what what do they need to be aware about in that position that uh, they they necessarily might not be seeing? Well, in the tech industry, there's even this additional layer of responsibility because we are building software and and hardware, you know, whatever we may be building, uh, and we have opportunities to make it accessible. And so certainly um, prioritizing accessibility for all of the the reasons for your users um, for um, to, to make that impact on the world. Uh, we know there's a business case for it as well, but also um, for employees and kind of demonstrating that commitment uh, is, uh, is an important piece. Um, creating opportunities for candidates to express access needs if they have one uh, in the hiring process uh, is another important uh, element that anyone hiring, uh, whether for product or not, can do. Um, but really, uh, from a from a product perspective, I, the you know the importance of accessibility uh, is is paramount. And I know as a startup leader how hard that that can be. And when you're a smaller company, maybe you're trying to get product market fit. You know, resources are are always strapped. Um, so I, I I say this with compassion. And um, there's always somewhere to start. And starting with you know the whoever whoever has access needs in your orbit right now is always a great place to start so maybe even um you know the events that you're planning at your organization putting a note to say hey if you have you know any needs or or, you know if, if we can accommodate you in any way let us know uh I've done that before and had someone say, you know, I'm really having a, a break every you know, hour or two would be really helpful. And it's not, I'm not sure if that person had a disability or not. And it doesn't really matter because if we can just get in the habit of practicing, asking people, all people, you know, what their needs are and how we can accommodate them, we will start normalizing the access needs because we all, we all do have needs. Um, but for some of us, those needs are closer to being, you know, life or death or work or not work or, you know, the, the implications, uh, or, you know, access or not access, uh, the implications get, get, um, steeper for, for those of us that with disabilities. I, I've similarly been in companies that have prioritized accessibility and some that have decided it wasn't, you know, well, it's just the priority at the time. Right. And so you can either choose to, to do that or not. And some of the good resources out there for those building products, I know uh, WCAG and ADAA compliance, ADA compliances, those are some of the web accessibility solutions out there of, of the guidelines. I think there are some uh, interesting startups in this space, too, to help you, um, you know, audit or, you know, suggest um, ways to make it more accessible for, for different abilities. So I think those are good resources. Is there anything else like that that you can share with our, our listeners that they can uh, be aware about? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've got a roundup post on Tech Disability Project that I can share with you. Um, that can yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Resources. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Perfect. Um, Perfect. But I will give a special shout out for anyone with a disability that's that's looking for work. Um, there's a company called Chronically Capable that's uh, a job board um, specifically for people with chronic illness, but per, for people with any any disability, um, they vet these employers um, to a certain degree, and I, I certainly recommend them. Wow. So such an amazing career so far in your journey, but it's not over the way we're, we're telling this story chronologically. Now, from uh, your, your stint as this nonprofit founder and, and this amazing opportunity and also on recovery, like you, you then had this pivot moment where you move in, back into product, but also not just product and, and you know, leadership, but executive, right? Product executive experience. And so where you're working, again, closely with the CEO, but on a, on a different scale than you had in the past. And so... Um, what, how did you manage that leap and that transition from this stint? Like that's, that's a journey. Hmm, Yes. Yes, it has been. Um, sometimes I look, I look back and, and I can barely believe it because, uh, in some ways it's been so, it's been so difficult and it's been such a long journey. Um, I was on partial bed rest for two and a half years and it was almost this experience of coming back to life. Um, there was a year of recovery that I did prior to uh, starting to apply to jobs um, and just really wanting to feel prepared. And there's still, um, I've had to work through all of this this scar tissue around um, believing in myself, trusting my gut, having confidence because I had just this overwhelming amount of data points saying, you know, you're not ready. You're not ready yet. That I, that, and many of which were true that I did have to work through to actually be ready to, um, re-enter the workforce. And, um, the only way that you can do it is, is by doing it, <laughs> just putting, you know, taking, taking one step at a time. And so, um, I did that, that year of just, pushing, pushing myself physically, mentally, emotionally. And, uh, this was during the pandemic as well, which was, um, you know, just added, added, added both some extra layers of difficulty and some extra layers of accessibility, I'll say. Um, and then I started applying to jobs. I was not planning to apply to executive roles. That was far outside of what I believed myself ready to do. Um, and Maverick found me, I'll tell you. Um, they uh, were really interested in my background. So Maverick is an influencer marketing platform. And so also in the social MarTech space, which is exactly what my background was in, and also has a tremendous commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so there was this, um, this since they found my resume floating around and there was a sincere interest um, in, in chatting with me from, from our CEO. And uh, this ended up being by far um, the most exciting opportunity that I could have the chance to work on uh, after a three and a half year career pause. And it is absolutely not disappointed. I've been there for about 16 months and um, it is so... I. 
It is so fun getting to work in the social space again. It is so fun getting to do some of my favorite things, which are related to building teams and building building cultures and, and scaling companies. And um, that essentially summarizes where we are right now. We are um, growing our social proof platform, both in the offerings that we have for marketers who want to work with creators on brand partnerships, as well as um, we recently acquired a company called Later um, that is a social media uh, scheduling tool um, that has, you know, that that creator facing and, and consumer facing product real estate that's new for us as an organization, but very exciting to see what we're going to be able to accomplish together. That is awesome. Usually what we do at the end of the show um, is kind of assign homework to our listeners for the week. So something that from our conversation, ideally, if we can um, help them uh, assign them to focus on this week to deliver on. So um, if you were to <laughs> assign some homework to our listeners this week based on our conversations, I know it was a lot about your life personally, but what would you um, uh, assign to them? I know I've listened, I've been listening to your podcast, so I should oh. have seen this coming. Uh, <laughs> like, oh yeah, this is what Kevin does at the end of each episode. Okay, here here's the homework I'll assign. Think of think of one thing that you've been meaning to do that you have conviction around doing and it might even just be a, a suggestion to start socializing um but that for whatever reason it's been feeling like you won't be able to do it you've got some storyline uh oh so-and-so won't like it or it's not going to work out anyways or you know we we all have those 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 storylines that run through our head and i think so much about being a successful product person is being able to bring bring data to uh to speak against some of those those storylines that can cause us to think too small so identify one area where you might be thinking a little bit small but really can see that bigger picture that bigger opportunity and think of one step you can take um, towards validating whether that might be an exciting um, big opportunity to to chat with someone else about bring it to life that's a great homework assignment um from from mine you know the, the easy one is we'll have a whole bunch of links in the show notes about to to check out on um accessibility and also um the tech disability project um just as a, as a place to kind of dive into. I think in terms of some of the other conversations we had, um, I love the kind of diving in and just, and just going for it. It's so hard in the moment we kind of get stuck in our heads a little bit and have the paralysis analysis or the perfectionism or the imposter syndrome. And it becomes hard to take a, uh, take, take a jump off that leap, right. Or that ledge to, to get to the next, uh, uh part of your career and, and what you want to accomplish. Um, you know, uh, in, in regards to our conversation, if I were to think of one piece of homework, um, and I should have been thinking more during while you were thinking and talking, but, um, <laughs> you, you, uh, eloquently, uh, stated it really well. Um, I would say, you know, uh, uh, don't shy away from those, um, opportunities to, um, um, to grow with, with enterprise organizations. I think a lot of PMs really are interested in startups and, and it's, it's really good for fast career growth, but you can learn so much in the enterprise context that, 
um, can bring such a new light to um, your shape, right, as a PM. And, and I think just having the diversity of experience and that, that could really level yourself up um, if, if that opportunity arises. Um, so don't, don't shy away from those as an opportunity to look, grow. Well, uh, thank you, Natasha, so much for being on the show. I enjoyed our conversation and hearing more about your life and, and your story and your journey. So um, I hope uh, that, that helped others um, uh, learn, learn a little bit more and, and level up their careers. So uh, looks like we finished up our coffee. So go level up. This has been Product Coffee, produced and engineered by me, Kevin Gentry. Through our podcast partner, Anchor, you can now record a voice message and send us ideas or topics to cover, and who knows, we might end up playing it on the show. You can also become a supporter of Product Coffee by contributing a monthly donation to help us sustain future episodes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Product Coffee on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.